Well, this is um, it's kind of a big Sunday in a, in a few ways, hey? Um, two years, basically, since uh, the COVID-19 pandemic was declared, and here we are two years later, and uh, we're here, and, uh, and, and we're, we're filled, filled with joy for what God has done. It's also Time Change Sunday, and you, you all made it this morning, which is impressive. You know, I, I, I talk and have written recently about the evils of cell phones and uh, how it's inherently soul-sucking soul they are, and yet they do make the time change adjustment on their own. So there is that, at least. You have less people showing up late for church than you did maybe 10 years ago. So that's a bonus. Uh, let's, let's pray and then get into it. Uh, Jesus, I, I thank you, Lord, for today. I, I thank you, Lord, for where we are. Uh, for where we are as a church, and, and that you are present in this place, at work, speaking to us, renewing us, restoring us, comforting us. Lord, we pray today that your Holy Spirit would speak in this, in this time, Lord, that as we open up your word and as we reflect on, on these words in the book of Acts, that you would uh, just move among us, Lord, awakening us and calling us, Lord, to a, a deeper faith in you. Jesus, we pray that, that uh, I would be your servant today, that all of us would have our hearts open to you. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Uh, so I want, I want to follow up on something I said last week. I, I talked about how when the kingdom of God uh, advances, when, when Jesus uses us, to, uh, to open up people's eyes to who he is, that there is inevitably going to be uh, pushback. That there is, we, we believe that there is such a, a being as, as Satan, as the devil, and that he wants to stop the kingdom of God from advancing. And so he will arouse uh, opposition, sometimes irrationally kind of hostile opposition to it. So, um, so we've got a newcomer in our church who is, uh, I think, excited about the bridge and what's happening here. And she is a gifted artist, and she's involved in the community. And, and so what she does is she uh, does this, like, chalk art on sidewalks and pathways. And, and lately, on her own volition, she's been using the bridge logo and kind of telling people, hey, this is when Sunday morning services are at the bridge. You're welcome to join us. That's it. And I, I think that's great. Personally, I might be a little bit biased, but I, I think that's awesome. I, I love it. Here's a little picture. This was outside our church last, uh, last week. So I think that's great. Not everybody does. So I got an email uh, earlier this week from somebody in the community. I've never, I, I don't know them. I've never met them before. But this person emailed us as well as a whole bunch of other local authorities, the whole school board of North Van and everything. And she recounted the horror that she had experienced uh, that, uh, earlier that day. She said she was walking along and she saw this chalk art advertising community libraries and other things, North Shore life related. And she thought, wow. That's really cute. That's, that's great. And then <gasps> she saw this, an invitation to come join us at the bridge on Sunday mornings. And in her words, this was deeply offensive and totally inappropriate. In fact, she said this was totally wrong because it was in the vicinity of a school. And so she believed that if I was a, a pastor worth my salt, she didn't use those words, but I would tell my church how wrong this was and I would educate you all not to do this and that if we as a church want to have good relationships with our community, we shouldn't do things like this. In other words, if we want to have good relationships with the community, we should not let anybody know that we are here. we got to be like ninjas, just quiet. You know? And then she sent another email saying she had cracked the case open even further. She had discovered that it was not a child who had done this, which would have been bad enough, but that it was a grown adult female. Double gasp. 
<laughs> so I had a hard time taking it seriously. Uh, <laughs> and I certainly, I certainly don't, um, I am not presenting this as, here's persecution, guys. It's getting real, you know? Like, there's a grumpy email about chalk. But uh, I think... <laughs> I think it is, it is a small, very minor example of what I said last week, that, that when we see things like this happening, we shouldn't get discouraged and we shouldn't get frustrated. And uh, we, we probably we shouldn't be surprised. We probably shouldn't use sarcasm, which is a bit of a note to myself. Uh, instead, we should, if, if anything, maybe we rejoice in it because perhaps it means that we are, as a church, a threat to what Satan wants to do. Uh, perhaps we are being used to, to, to display the glory of Christ uh, and, and, and I think that we want to we be praying for people whose hearts are so hardened that they are so deeply triggered by a chalk invitation to come to church. And, and that we would pray that God would do something in their lives. Uh, not, not, again, not that this person is like Saul of Tarsus, but that God would do something similar in that life as he did in, in the life of Saul. And, and I think if we respond that way, uh, with, with compassion and, and even, even rejoicing that, uh, that God can use these kinds of things to actually continue to extend the kingdom and to, and to grow the church. And that's what we see in Acts chapter 9. So we've been in that chapter for the last couple of weeks. Uh, we meet Saul of Tarsus, a persecutor of the church, turned into a promoter of the gospel by the grace of Christ. And we looked last week at the first three years of, of Saul's life with Christ and how those were years of challenge in a whole bunch of ways. They were years of joy, but challenge because he was, he was not accepted by other believers who didn't believe that he really was a changed man. He was, he was faced with intense and violent persecution from those who, who rejected Jesus. And he was told by Jesus that this wasn't really going to change anytime soon. That this was kind of par for the course. This is, is going to be your life, Saul, ahead of you. Uh, in the end, he experiences a bunch of death threats, and so he escapes to his hometown of Tarsus. And then we read this in uh, 9 verse 31. Then the church throughout Judea, Galilee, and Samaria enjoyed a time of peace and was strengthened, living in the fear of the Lord and encouraged by the Holy Spirit. It increased in numbers. A few things from that. Uh, so one is you see this rhythm in the book of Acts that I think was true really for the first 300 years, at least, in, in the church. That you had this rhythm of times of hardship uh, interspersed with periods of, of peace. And I, I think both of those are needed for, for a healthy church by, by God's grace. That, that both of those are needed. That if, if all you ever experience is testing and conflict and hardship, that, that wears you out, wears a church out. But if all you ever experience is, is just peace, there's, there's nothing, nothing hard is ever happening, then, then that breeds complacency and apathy. And, and so I think you kind of need both of these to, to really be strengthened. And I, I think that's probably true of individuals too. You also see here a, a, a mention of the church, singular. Uh, Luke talks about how the church throughout all of these different regions, drawing from all these different people, how the church enjoyed this, this time of peace and was, was strengthened. Which is, I think, a good reminder for us that, that although we probably primarily think of ourselves as part of a local church like the Bridge Church, that we are in fact part of a living movement, a, a living body of Christ 
from every tribe and language and nation and people, and, and that together we are his temple, his bride, his people. That, that actually, if, if you are a follower of Jesus, and if you're not, I'm so, so glad you're here. But if, if you are, then you actually have more in common with a believer in Nigeria or China or Ukraine than you do with a lot of the people on, on your street. That, that's, how, that's how core this is. That's how united we are as the church around the globe. And then the third thing in that verse is that you get this mention of, of numerical growth. That, that people are, are being added to their number. And this was a feature of the early church, that there was this, this growth, this increase. And, and there aren't a lot of churches in Western culture that, that are growing. And the ones that are, a lot of times, it's, it's mostly by transfer growth, where people are going from one church to another, or it's, it's by kind of creating superficial connections with maybe pseudo-believers who kind of stay right on, on the edges, con- consumers maybe. And, and there really wasn't that in the early church. You, you didn't have transfer growth. Everybody's a new believer. And it's not like people are like, well, I don't like the music in the church of Ephesus very much, so I'm going to move to Colossae and be part of the church. You didn't have that kind of thing going on. And you didn't have those superficial connections as much because why would you, why would you die for something you're lukewarm about? Why would you risk being in prison? Why would you risk your livelihood for something that's kind of a take-it-or-leave-it thing in your life? If that's, if that's the cost of discipleship, then, then you're, you're probably only going to be committed, uh, you're only going to be part of this if you're really committed. So, so you don't really have that. The, the growth is happening from new believers. And, and I pray and I hope that, that our, our growth as a church, I, and I know what we will have transfer growth, and we've had that. We've had people coming to us from other churches and, and some from our church to other churches too. And, and I, I do want to say there are a lot of reasons for that and, and people who are, who are worshiping at a far distance and now want to be somewhere where it's, it's in their community. 100%, that's commendable, do that. Um, but... But my, my hope is that, that our church growth will happen as, as new believers encounter a church that is living and breathing the gospel. That they will be drawn to the life of Jesus that is being experienced in this place. And I think that's what's happening in the early church. And, and, and you see that in, in this description here. That, that how, how does the early church grow here in verse 31? They grow by living in the fear of the Lord and encouraged by the Holy Spirit. That their eyes are set on him. And, and that their, their strength is being drawn from the Holy Spirit. This isn't a worldly church that's kind of, uh, you know, da- adding a little dabble, a little sprinkle of Christianity to an otherwise secular life. Their whole lives revolve around God. Around, around being filled, you know, by his Holy Spirit to overflowing in every aspect of their lives. This is everything to them. And God blesses that by drawing people to it. And, and we see that, that church growth characteristic, that, that, that devotion to honoring the Lord and being filled by his spirit in this next section, verses 32 to 43. So here we go. Verse 32 of Acts 9. As Peter traveled about the country, he went to visit the Lord's people who lived in Lydda. And there he found a man named Aeneas, who was paralyzed and had been bedridden for eight years. Aeneas, Peter said to him, Jesus Christ heals you. Get up and roll up your mat. Immediately, Aeneas got up. All those who lived in Lydda and Sharon saw him and turned to the Lord. In Joppa, there was a disciple named Tabitha. In Greek, her name is Dorcas. She was always doing good and helping the poor. 
About that time, she became sick and died, and her body was washed and placed in an upstairs room. Lydda was near Joppa, so when the disciples heard that Peter was in Lydda, they sent two men to him and urged him, please come at once. Peter went with them, and when he arrived, he was taken upstairs to the room. All the widows stood around him, crying and showing him the robes and other clothing that Dorcas had made while she was still with them. Peter sent them all out of the room. And then he got down on his knees and prayed. Turning toward the dead woman, he said, Tabitha, get up. And she opened her eyes, and seeing Peter, she sat up. She took, he took her by the hand and helped her to her feet. And then he called for the believers, especially the widows, and presented her to them alive. And this became known all over Joppa, and many people believed in the Lord. Peter stayed in Joppa for some time with a, a tanner named Simon. You got two healing stories here. One man who's paralyzed, one a woman who's, who's actually died. And there are some similarities in both of these stories, and I want to kind of track those through. And, and, and these similarities actually all have to do with, with Jesus. And, and here's the first one, that these stories of healing have a lot in common with stories of healing that we actually find in, in the Gospels. So take Aeneas as, as the first example. Aeneas uh, is, is paralyzed, has been paralyzed, can't move for eight years. We talked last week about Saul being blind for three days and how relieving it would have been to have that blindness reversed, not knowing if this would be permanent. This guy hasn't been able to walk for eight years. Can you imagine watching everybody else doing things that you wish that you could do but can't? And you've been there maybe in, in various ways. Maybe you're there right now. You look at that and you, you just wish that you could do that. And then along comes this guy. And, he, and he, says, he says to you, get up, take up your mat and walk. And all of a sudden there's this power coursing through your body. And, and you, you can stand, you can walk, you can run. You haven't been able to do this in almost a decade. I mean, how incredible would that be? There aren't, you know, there aren't that many stories of healings of, of paralytics in the Bible. There are a few. And by far the most famous one is, is not this one, but one that we find in Luke chapter 5. Um, Jesus is, is in, a, he's in a house and he's teaching and, uh, and the house is packed. And he's already got this reputation as, as somebody who, who has the power to heal sicknesses. And, and so there's this man who's been paralyzed, not just for eight years, but since, since he was born. And his friends come and, and they take him. They, they want to they meet Jesus. They want Jesus to heal this man. But the house is packed. They can't get in. And, uh, and instead of recounting the rest of the story, I'm, I'm actually going to show you a little clip from the TV show, The Chosen, and, and show you what happens next. So here you go. Jesus of Nazareth! I saw what you did to the leopard on the road this morning. My friend has been paralyzed since childhood. He has no hope but you. Please, do for him what you did for the leper. That's a rope! Put it back, man! If you are willing, Rabbi, I know you can do this.
make up your bed and go home. got shivers down their spine a little bit tears I got a, I got a few tears eyes watering a little bit anyways uh, that's the TV show The Chosen if you guys haven't seen it it's so, it's so good it's so good kind of um, the life of Jesus with uh, with the disciples so so I mean there are there are, it's not it's not an exact parallel with what we find in Acts 9 obviously there's no record of the the roof over Peter's head being broken through uh, for Aeneas to get there. But in, in Luke 5.24, you get Jesus saying to the paralyzed man, I tell you, get up, take your mat, and go home. And immediately he stood up in front of them, took what he had been lying on, and went home praising God. And, and what does Peter say to Aeneas? He says, get up and roll up your mat. And immediately Aeneas got up. It's almost like Peter had seen this happen before. It's almost like he was following in the footsteps of his master and doing the kinds of things that he saw Jesus doing. And it's the same thing with, with the story of Tabitha. You know, Tabitha, in, in, in Greek, her name is, is Dorcas, and she was a woman who uh, lived a humble life of, of service to the poor. And, and she fell sick and died. And, and there were all these, all these widows whose lives were touched, who were, were so encouraged by Tabitha, and they're, and they're mourning, and they hear that Peter is close by. Uh, Lydda, where Peter was, was staying, and where, where Aeneas was, is about 16 kilometers away from Joppa, kind of modern-day Tel Aviv, uh, where, where Tabitha was. And so they send for Peter to come, and I don't know exactly what they thought would happen. I don't know if they actually expected that, that Peter could could pray and, and see Tabitha raised from the dead. But in any case, he shows up, he comes into the room, they're, they're, they're mourning, they're crying, they're showing him all of these, all these garments, all these things that Tabitha had done. Look, look, like big show and tell, like look at what she has done. And, uh, and Peter sends them all out of the room. And he gets down on his knees and he prays. And, and then he says, Tabitha, get up. And, and if he spoke in Aramaic, which was his, would have been Peter's native tongue, it would have been his first, his first language, and quite possibly the words that he actually would have spoken here, it would have been Tabitha kum, is, is what he would have said in, in Aramaic. Tabitha, get up. And this, this woman, we don't know how long she had been dead for, but all of a sudden her eyes open, and she sits up, and, and she's alive again. And uh, Peter calls her friends in. And, and obviously, I've, I've, never, I've never been dead before. Most of you haven't either. I don't know what that would be like to come back from the dead. But I, I can imagine, and some of you can imagine, what it would be like to have somebody that you love so much, who you have lost, who, who you are mourning, and, and for them 
to come back to life. I mean, that would be like the biggest nightmare becoming just, just joy. You know, that, that's what that would be. And, and that's what happens here in Acts 9. That, that's, that's a reality for these friends is that this woman that they've seen, they, they, they've, they've said goodbye to now is, is with them once again. Now, in, in, in Mark chapter 5, there's a story about Jesus landing uh, at, a, on, at a town on the Sea of Galilee. And as he lands, there's this man who, who runs and, and meets Jesus. His name's Jairus. And Jairus is the leader of the synagogue, and he says that he's got a daughter who is deathly ill. And he, and he asks Jesus to come with him so that his daughter can be healed. And, and a bunch of other things happen on the way, and, 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 uh, and, and suddenly there's a messenger that comes from Jairus' home and says, actually, it's, it's too late. Your daughter has, has died. Don't bother Jesus with this anymore. And, and Jesus doesn't seem to think that it's too late because he continues on with them. And, and they arrive at the home and there are all these people who, who are mourning, who are wailing because of the loss of this beloved girl. And Jesus sends everybody out of the house except for the disciples. And he says to the girl, and in Mark 5 it actually says this. It's an, it's, it's an Aramaic phrase. Jesus says, Talita kum, which means little girl, get up. And suddenly this girl opens her eyes, gets up. She's, she's restored to life. See, you see the parallels here, right? In both cases, you have this beloved woman who falls sick and, and dies. A man comes and dismisses those who are mourning, those who are wailing. And, and one, one says, Tabita kum, I think. The other one says, Talita kum. And in both cases, this beloved girl is restored to life. Look, the point again is that for the early disciples, becoming a follower of Jesus and, and becoming like him wasn't just a matter of saying a bunch of nice things. It wasn't just a matter of being a slightly better person. It was actually living with the same power that Jesus had. It meant, it meant doing Jesus' things. It meant ministering in Jesus' ways. John 12, verse 12 says, Very truly, I tell you, this is Jesus saying to his disciples, Whoever believes in me will do the works I have been doing, and they will do even greater things than these, because I'm going to the Father. Does that not blow your mind? Jesus says you will do even greater things. You're going to do the things I'm doing. You're going to do even greater things. And I think the, the greater things is because it's not just one person doing it anymore, but by the power of the Holy Spirit, it's a whole bunch of people who are, who are doing Jesus things, who are, are doing these kinds of acts, who, who are healing, who are speaking as Jesus did. And that's what we see in Acts 9, is followers of Jesus, like Peter, following in the footsteps of his master and, and, and continuing on the things that Jesus did. Now, the second thing I, I think that we see in this, in this passage, in, in both of these stories of healing, is that it's not just that these healings are like ones that Jesus did, but they actually are done by Jesus himself. And, and that's clear with the Aeneas story especially, because Peter tells him, Jesus Christ heals you. Who heals Aeneas? It's not Peter. I mean, Peter... Peter can't just say something and expect it to happen on his own power. I, I, I think about The Office, the TV show The Office, and the one episode where Michael Scott, the uh, bungling uh, boss of Dunder Mifflin, he's got money issues. And uh, one of his coworkers tells him that a great way out of this is to declare bankruptcy. And so Michael Scott walks right into the middle of The Office and he goes, I declare 
bankruptcy. And one guy's like, you can't, you can't just say bankruptcy and expect anything to happen. He goes, well, I didn't say it. I declared it. So <laughs> you have, if you're going to declare bankruptcy, you have to involve the power of, of the banks and your creditors, right? You can't just do it on your own. If Peter's going to see anything happen here, he, ha- he has to actually rely on, on another power, on, on the power of Jesus. He's not gonna, nothing's going to happen on his own. And it's the same kind of deal with, with Tabitha. I mean, how is Peter going to do anything? She, she's, she's gone. She's, she's dead. What, what is Peter going to do? So, so what does he do? Well, he gets down on his knees and he, and he prays because he knows who Jesus is. He knows from the gospel of John, Jesus said that I am the resurrection and the life. He is the resurrection. He is the life. And in the gospel of John, it says in him, in Jesus was life. In Acts 3, Luke tells us that Jesus is the author of life. Peter's not the author of life. Peter's not, he's not the, 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 the resurrection. Peter's not, like he doesn't have life in him to give to others. That's a Jesus thing. See, if, if you were there in the first century in person, you, you would have looked and it would have looked like it was Peter doing these things, right? Peter's the one helping the paralytic up to his feet. Peter's the one speaking to a, a girl and, and her rising from the dead. It would look like it was Peter. But behind the scenes, it was the risen Jesus at work. It wasn't, it wasn't Peter doing these things. It was the living Jesus, See, in Acts 1, verse 1, right at the very beginning of the book, Luke uh, says that he wrote formerly, the book he wrote formerly, meaning the gospel of Luke, his account of the life and death and resurrection of Jesus. So that, that's the gospel of Luke. And, and Luke says that now he's writing the book of Acts. And he says, I wrote the former book uh, about all that Jesus began to do and to teach. The book of Luke is about what Jesus began to do and to teach, which means that the book of Acts is about what Jesus continues to do and to teach. The book of Acts is about what Jesus continues to do and to teach, which means that the main character in the book of Acts is not Peter, it's not Paul, it's not Philip or Barnabas or Stephen or John, it's Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is the main character of the book of Acts. This is what he is doing now through his church. And actually, I believe this is true of our individual lives as well. Um, this is going to maybe sound a little bit strange, but it, it's, I, I think this is a major mindset shift. What if the main character of your life was not you? What if the main character of your life was not you? What if the main character of your life was Jesus? What if, what if your, your affections and desires and beliefs were not informed by your own self-centered vision or, and not by the ways of the world, but by Jesus? What if, what if the power that you lived by did not come from yourself, but by Jesus? What if your greatest desire in life was not to extend your own name and your own reputation and your own cause, but to extend the name of Jesus in the world? Because that's actually, I think, what set the early disciples apart. This was true of them. It was all about Christ. This is what Paul says in Galatians 2. He said, I have been crucified with Christ, and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. The life I now live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Paul was still Paul. Okay, he still had his personality, he still had his experiences, but he says in a very real sense, it's no longer I who live, 
I'm not living for myself anymore. I am living for Christ. I have a new identity. I have a new purpose. I have a new vision in life. I have been crucified. See, the main character in the life of a follower of Jesus is not themselves. If you're a follower of Jesus, you are not the main character in your life. Even though we might act like it, even though we might forget it and live that way, in reality, in truth, the main character is Jesus. And that's true, by the way, in world history as well. That, that, that Jesus is actually the main character in world history. Do you know that? And, and, uh, and I don't just mean that the thing that he did 2,000 years ago at the cross was like this really huge turning point. Of course it was. But I mean, on an ongoing basis, Jesus is the main character in the story of the world. You don't read that on CBC News. You don't, you don't, want, you don't see that anywhere. But that's, that's the truth according to the scriptures that Jesus is the main character of world history. And so, yeah, you have all kinds of tyrants and dictators and, and, and warmongers and you've got viruses and you have all of these things that are, that are breaking or are broken and you've got all kinds of powers and authorities, both human and supernatural, that are trying to accomplish their purposes. Because after all, in any story, you're going to have villains, you're going to have antagonists, you're going you're, you're to have challenges. But behind all of that is the risen Jesus who is reigning over all and any day now will break through and judge evil once and for all and establish his kingdom in its fullness forever. Behind all the scenes of world history is the risen Jesus working to bring everything to fulfillment, everything to accomplish his yet to be fully understood purposes in a yet to be fully understood way. But it is him behind the scenes. I think that's the main point of the book of Revelation. For all the, all the speculation and talk about it, I think that's what Revelation tells us, the last book in the Bible, that behind the scenes of history, with everything else going on, Jesus is at work bringing things to fulfillment, bringing things to, to work according to his purpose. See, Jesus is still at work in the world today. He's still speaking. He's still, he's still acting. He's still healing. He's still raising the dead. And he's doing that both metaphorically and literally. And I know that, that seems, that's, I'm saying a lot of unbelievable weird things today. That seems pretty strange to say, especially if you've grown up in a culture like North America where we know that, that people who die normally stay dead. But, but there are stories from all over the world of people who've been raised to life by the power of, of Jesus. And there are stories in our own culture too. One that, that gained a lot of notoriety was back in 2006. There was a mechanic in Florida who checked himself into a hospital, died of a heart attack, and the, uh, the ER staff spent 40 minutes trying unsuccessfully to revive him. They shocked him with a paddle seven times uh, as, as, he was, as he was flatlined the whole time. There's a doctor there in the hospital named Dr. Chauncey Crandall. He's a world-renowned cardiologist and a follower of Jesus. And he's called in to certify the obvious that this, this mechanic had passed away. In fact, even his face and his toes and his fingers were, had turned black. Like he was like really, really dead. There was really no doubt about it. And so Dr. Crandall fills out the paperwork, yes, you know, and, and, and he, he leaves the room. He's going to check on other patients and suddenly he gets this extraordinarily strong compulsion uh, by the Holy Spirit to return to the room. Goes back and, and the nurse is actually already preparing the body for, uh, for the morgue. And he walks in and he just finds himself kneeling down and, and praying for this, this man. 
And, uh, and he prays, Father God, I cry out for the soul of this man. If he doesn't know you as his Lord and Savior, please raise him from the dead right now in Jesus' name. And the nurse who's there is just looking at him like, like so thoroughly confused. Like, like this is not normal hospital procedure, right? And he, and he tells, Dr. Crandall tells the ER doctor, much to his protest, but he eventually he does it to, to actually shock this man one more time with the paddle. Like, what are you talking about? But, but okay, he takes the paddle, shocks him one more time, and instantly the man's heartbeat is restored. Goes from flatline for like an hour. This guy was clinically dead for almost an hour. Suddenly heartbeat fully restored. Breathing on his own. Within moments, he's talking, he's up, he's, he's moving around. The nurse is like, what have you done, Dr. Crandall? Thinking this is like a Frankenstein kind of thing or something. And, uh, and so this man was, was totally restored to health despite being clinically dead for, for almost an hour. Now, again, I know that seems too hard to believe. And even if you do believe it, it probably raises more questions than answers because, because you might go, well, why, why did God's Spirit direct Dr. Crandall to pray for that man and not many, many others that Dr. Crandall would have, would have seen pass away? Why, why was Peter called to pray for Tabitha and not any number of other disciples of Jesus in the early church that would have passed away. Why hasn't God sent someone to pray for that person that you love that has passed away? Why did he allow that to happen? And I don't, there's no way I have an answer for that. I don't understand God's purposes in that. I do know that every one of these resurrections in this body, in this life, they're, they're temporary. I mean, Tabitha is not currently catching rays on a beach in Tel Aviv 2,000 years later. She succumbed to death once again. She, she, she passed away again. This, it, it was temporary. Every, every raising in this life is. The, the point is, of what I'm trying to say is, is that even now, Jesus continues to do the things he did in the first century. He continues to heal. He continues to speak. He continues to act. That hasn't changed. You've got to understand, he's not an idea. He's not a historical figure you can learn about in a book. I mean, you can, but he's not just that. He's not a concept. He is a living person who wants to have a relationship with you today. He, want, he, he is alive and he is active. He hasn't gone anywhere. He is the main character in our lives, in our world, and everything points to him. Amen? The third thing that we notice from these stories is, 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 um, is that there's a similar result. The result of these healings causes a, a it's, it's a ripple effect. In fact, it's more of a tidal wave of people turning to faith in Jesus. So it's not just that the healings are done like Jesus. It's not just that they're done by Jesus. It's that they're actually done for Jesus. And so with Aeneas, he's healed of his paralysis. And we read in verse 35 that all who lived in Lydda and Sharon saw him, saw Aeneas, and turned to the Lord. They saw this guy who hadn't been able to walk for years and years and years. And suddenly, Peter says, Jesus Christ heals you and the guy's up and walking. And a lot of people go, okay, all right, maybe there's something to this Jesus thing. Same deal with Tabitha. Here's this woman who's passed away. She's raised to life. In verse 42, this became known all over Joppa and many people believed in the Lord because because if, if someone rises from the dead, that's going to shake up your worldview a little bit, you know? That, that's going to cause you to question some things. That's going to cause you to be open to the truth in a way that you perhaps weren't 
before. And we see this over and over again in the book of Acts that you have these these miracles, these healings, these signs that lead to many people trusting in the Lord. In Acts chapter 2, I'm going to run through through a few of them. In Acts chapter 2, you have the Holy Spirit falling on the disciples and they begin speaking in all kinds of languages that they would have no business knowing on their own. They're speaking in tongues and, and it creates an openness for Peter to share how Jesus is the fulfillment of the scriptures. And as a result, at the end of Acts 2, we read that those who accepted his message were baptized and about 3,000 were added to their number that day. Because you have this incredible sign paired with a proclamation of the gospel. In Acts chapter 3, there's a man who was, who's been lame from birth. Peter and John, they come across him. They, uh, they tell him, in the name of Jesus, get up and walk. He does. People are like, whoa, we see this guy all the time and now he's walking. And there's this openness. And Peter tells them how Jesus has risen from the dead. And we read that many who heard the message believed. So the number of men who believed grew to about 5,000. In Acts 5, we read about all these, all these signs and healings that the uh, apostles are doing to the extent that people would actually bring sick people uh, in Peter's path so that if his shadow fell on the person, then, then, then maybe they'd be healed. That was the extent to which the power was working in the early church. And we read in Acts 5 that more and more men and women believed in the Lord and were added to their number. In Acts 8, Philip is in Samaria and there are all these people who, are, who have been possessed by demons and they're set free. People who have been sick, people who are paralyzed are being healed and many believe the good news of the kingdom of God and are baptized in the name of Jesus just over and over again. And we'll see it over and over again some more that these, these signs, these miracles are a major stimulus for evangelism. See, I've made this point before. But the, the point of any healing, of any miracle, of any incredible thing that God does, the point is not the thing itself. Uh, the point is who that sign points to. The point is always Jesus. And so if you ever want to be used by God in this way, you need to understand this very clearly. That you don't, God's not going to use you so that you're, you are glorified. He's not going to use this because you can go like, hey, look at this cool party trick I can do. Boom, you're healed. He's not going to do that. It's not about you. It's about him. Which means that really any, any healing, any sign, any miracle should be accompanied by an explanation of the gospel. Because that's the point, to provoke faith in Jesus. Because after all, like I said with the, the resurrection thing, none of these healings in this body are permanent. They're all temporary. You know, and, and this is what drives me a bit crazy about some of these faith healers who seem to promise that if you just have enough faith, that you will be healed of anything and, and everything. Because as far as I know, every single one of those televangelists and, and faith healers has died or will die. As to my knowledge, none of them have been swept away in a fiery chariot to heaven, never to taste death like Elijah. It hasn't happened, right? So either, either they all are failures and lack faith or they've misunderstood something along the way. I'm going to go with the second option on that one. I think they misunderstood because Jesus never promised to heal us of everything and anything in these bodies in this life. He promised to do that in eternity. And so when he does that in 
this life in these bodies. He does it so that people will turn to him, that they will trust in him, so that they will one day receive that full and eternal healing he promises for all who trust in him. So to conclude, uh, wrap up with this. I think there are two errors that we can fall into here. The one is the one that we just talked about. That some people believe that if you just have enough faith, that everybody can be healed of, of anything and that all of us have been equally gifted with this. You know, if, if, you, if, you, if you're not experiencing it, it's your fault. There's that kind of thing. But you can also go the other way and say that, that healings like this were just for the first century. They were just for the early church. God doesn't work in this way anymore. This isn't for us. And, and some people think that maybe to guard against excesses and abuses they've seen. Maybe some people say that because they want to guard their own kind of expectations. But I think the right approach is, is somewhere in between those. I, I think we, we want to be realistic. That God has gifted all of us with, with, different, with different gifts by his spirit. That there are gifts of healing. And that there are gifts of speaking in tongues. And there, there's a gift of, of preaching and teaching. There's a gift of mercy. There's a gift of giving. All of these things. And we'll maybe do all of those things to some extent or another. But the Holy Spirit has distributed these gifts to the body. So we can be realistic. Not all of us will work in these ways like, like Peter did. We can also be realistic, again, that, that God doesn't heal all the time in these, in these bodies in, in this life. That, that oftentimes our prayers are not going to be answered the way that we would like them to be. We can be realistic about that and yet also long for and expect and hope that God will, in fact, work in these ways. We can step out in faith and we can pray for healing for people because we do believe, we are confident that God does work in this way, that Jesus is alive and active. We can do this because we long for the kingdom of God to break into this place. We long for people to know the name of Jesus. And we know that in a place like North Vancouver, in a place where Many people's hearts are quite hardened to the gospel. People are deeply triggered by chalk art invitations to come to church. That in a place like that, that it may be that the only way the ground will be broken is if God does what only God can do, way beyond anything that we are able to. So we pray, we seek, we long for it. Is that true of you today? See, in 1 Corinthians 14, Paul tells us to eagerly, zealously, passionately desire the gifts of the Spirit, especially those that build up the church and, 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 and make him known. He says, desire these, zealously desire these. Is that true of us today? Are we seeking this? Are we longing for it? Are we saying to God, I want your kingdom. I want you to be made known through my life. And I am available to you however you want to use me. If you want to use me in ways that go way beyond my comfort zone. You want me to pray for people for healing. I'll do it because all I care about is your kingdom. I've been crucified. It is you who are the main character in my life. I'm here. Use me. Is that true of you today? Let's pray and ask the Lord together for this. Jesus, we, we believe that you are alive and active, that you are the living God, and that the things that you did in the Gospels and even the things that you did in the book of Acts, you do today. 
And so, Lord, we, we want to invite you, Lord, use us, work through us however you desire. We want, Lord, for your kingdom to break into this place. We want people to know the life and the joy and the hope that comes in you. We want people to be turned to you as they were in Joppa, as they were in Lydda. And so we invite you, Holy Spirit, give us those gifts. Speak to us, Lord, lead us. Use us as your instruments to do what we could never do on our own. We invite you, Lord, to work in us and through us by your power. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for joining us at the Bridge Church in this way. If God has spoken to you through his word, or if you're wanting to reach out to pray, or just wanting to know more about our church, access our website. There you can connect with us and also have access to other contents. We are a church that lives to know Jesus Christ personally and to make him known. We believe he is the hope of the world and wants to give you hope as well. We believe the best news ever has come in and through him. May you know him more and make him known today. We'd love to hear from you.